Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us. There is plenty on. I mentioned last night that the no case on The Voice has suddenly grown stronger with the outstanding decision by Peter Dutton to elevate Jacinta Price to the opposition front bench. She will take on the Indigenous Australians portfolio and lead the Liberal campaign against what is increasingly looking like a yes campaign based on deception and denial. They won't tell you the detail because the detail would shock you. This is no simple change, and I'll keep addressing that truth. But let's see now how the government goes in attacking spokespeople for the No campaign. All we've heard so far is name-calling and vitriol. See if they're game to try that tactic on the No spokesperson, who now happens to be both a woman and an Indigenous Australian. Well, along with that, the Shadow Treasurer, Angus Taylor, has stepped up to the plate and rightly told Treasurer Chalmers to stop hiding behind, and I quote, grim forecasts and the RBA, and instead, quote, take responsibility for the fact that higher inflation, higher interest rates come out of Canberra. Now, Chalmers has done absolutely nothing of benefit as Treasurer, except paint a picture of gloom and doom, presumably, as I have said, to cover his backside over the forthcoming budget, which presumably will provide no answers to our cost of living pressures or indeed our debt. And then we learn at no surprise that delays to Snowy Hydro and the Curry Curry gas plant are going to create big problems, surprise, surprise, for the Minister of Stupidity, Chris Bowen, who thinks he'll navigate to a transition to renewable energy. Well, here we are potentially an energy superpower. But on the world front, large swathes of Europe have pivoted back to coal as they wean themselves off Russian gas. And all those bold predictions made last year at that waste of space in Glasgow, that the end of coal was in sight, those predictions are at best laughable. Germany, Austria, Poland, Italy, the Netherlands and Greece have turned back to coal-fired power. What are we doing? We've got heaps of it, yet we've got people in government denying us the economic benefits that come from cheap energy. And Albo and the Labor government are enjoying a honeymoon. Well, my advice is enjoy it while it lasts, because I'll tell you something, a divorce is on the way. Now, look, if you're a Sydney cider or a visitor to Sydney, you won't be surprised to learn that as an international city, Sydney is way behind global cities like London, Paris and New York in terms of affordability, safety, nightlife and an ideological town hall administration telling business how to run business. Developers wanting to provide housing for the inner city, but not allowed to provide car spaces, but they can't provide bike racks. I often say, if you see someone walking around the city of Sydney at 9.30 at night, you know they must be lost because the place is closed down. Since 1999, Sydney's had an urban task force, predominantly made up of prominent property developers who want to promote high quality urban planning and development. They talk about promoting policies that encourage economic growth and increased employment in Sydney. Their chief executive, Tom Forrest, is spot on when he says of Sydney that, quote, we need a leader in the heart of Sydney, isn't this good stuff, who thinks of it as a global city with more than five million people, rather than a group of privileged bohemians from Erskineville, Paddington and Piermont who want to ride their bicycles to work. Unquote. You take London as an example. It has a $9 billion program to build affordable homes. Sydney has a housing for all committee, which plans to build, they say, 57,000 homes, except that the committee has met only once. The Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, is a nice person, and I'm sure she means well, but she's been there for 19 years. All she's done is champion bike lanes, that reduce vehicle access around the city of Sydney, they infuriate businesses who are cut off from customers and deliveries by concrete bollards. Paul Nicolau is the executive director of Business City, Business Sydney. Given the fact that Sydney is miles behind other global cities on a string of benchmarks, 
Paul Nicolau makes the important point that it's time for Sydney to have a government appointed minister who could take a greater view of the whole metropolitan area. Paul Nicolau rightly says that I quote, access to Sydney is becoming increasingly expensive to live or play with high estate prices, high motorway tolls and high parking charges. He says, for many people, this erodes the feeling that Sydney is their city. And rightly he says, and I quote, we don't want Sydney to become a ghetto for the rich who can afford to pay for the Harbour City lifestyle while everyday families can't. Good stuff. And don't we talk endlessly about the voice while all of these critical issues remain unaddressed. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. I made the point last night that I can't be the only one tired of the sycophantic way in which the Prime Minister and his government are treated without appropriate critical analysis. Now, I provided such analysis last night, and you can always watch this program and previous programs by going to the ADH app or the website. And you can do this on your phone, computer or smart TV. As I said, I dealt last night with these issues, which had they been known prior to the election, Anthony Albanese would not be Prime Minister. Had the electorate been told that superannuation would be taxed, Labor would not have been elected. Had they been told that 10 million middle-income Australians would lose the low and middle-income tax offset at the next budget, Labor would not have been elected. That's a variable tax increase, by the way. Some of these 10 million taxpayers will have up to $1,500 less in their pockets. Remember we were told that under Labor, average household power bills will be lower? Yet the last Chalmers budget papers told us that electricity bills will rise by 50% over the next 18 months, some say as high as 80%, and gas bills by 40%, because this government demonises fossil fuels. They want the end of coal and gas. As I said last night, Labor blames Putin and the war in Ukraine, but that started on February 24. All these dishonest promises were being made right up until the election on May 21. Make no mistake, this bloke Bowen is an economic time bomb, the author of this national economic suicide note, otherwise called energy policy. Then, of course, there's the voice, and I'll keep reminding people of what that means. It's certainly not a warm, inner glow, constitutional change of little significance bringing the past into line with the present. This will change entirely the way government is run in this country, and the Prime Minister has acknowledged that. But he won't provide the details because the voice is the thin edge of the wedge, or should I say the thick edge. The treaty comes next, and then sovereignty. You think you own your house and land, and you've worked all your life to secure that asset? Well, minutes in the compilation of what's now the voice indicate that down the track, those purporting to represent Indigenous Australians will want a compensatory percentage of GDP, rent paid to them for the property you own. I make this point because we've got this sycophantic eulogising of the Labor government, which doesn't pass critical analysis. And instead, we get a demonisation of the allegedly unelectable Peter Dutton. Remember they said that about John Howard? It was a bulletin magazine on December 20, 1988, which headlined on its cover in relation to John Howard, the then opposition leader, and I quote, Mr 18%, why on earth does this man bother? We know what happened to John Howard and how wrong the critics were. Peter Dutton is as dinky-dye an Australian as you'll get. He's been in the parliament for 21 years. He's won the seat of Dixon in Brisbane and notionally Labor seat in eight consecutive elections. The electorate love him. He's held ministries in defence, home affairs, health and sport. He's been on the National Security Committee of Australia and the Expenditure Review Committee of the government. There is no one, no one in the national parliament with greater experience at the highest level of government. And think of the current government as only one or two people have ever been in a ministry. Dutton's parents weren't well off. The bloke started part-time work at a butcher shop, but he saved and bought his first house at 19. And he reckons if you work hard and put your head down, you can make it. Not a bad philosophy for a leader. And he wants those opportunities for everyone if they are prepared to work, which brings me to The Voice. Peter Dutton was forming a policeman. He worked in Townsville. He went to many domestic violence incidents involving Indigenous communities. 
He walked out on the apology to the stolen generation and subsequently argued that that was a mistake. I'm not sure he needed to apologise. His reasons were perfectly valid. As a policeman, he'd attended violent incidents, as I said, involving Indigenous communities, and he believed that apology should only be given when those problems are resolved. He told me in an interview last year, and I quote, the little boys and girls, there it is on your screen, in parts of our country in 2022, who slept in a shipping container last night to get through the hours of darkness in Indigenous communities, unquote. I think he spoke for millions of Australians when he said, and I quote, going to a meeting here in Canberra and giving 10 acknowledgements to country, that's fine. And I don't say that in a disparaging way, but I want to know how it is we're going to support those kids. I want to know how it is we're going to get better health outcomes and lower mortality rates, more kids through university, just finishing primary school and secondary school to start with, unquote. Well, what we see today in the political world is very few Peter Duttons. The rich seem to want to purge themselves of their unearned income by voting for the left and the teals. But the battlers and the strugglers are looking to people like Dutton to be the architect of their future. Let's face it, Labor at the last election won 32.6% of the vote, but won eight seats. Won with 32.6% of the vote. The Coalition won 35.7% of the vote, not a good result, but they lost 18 seats. Now, of course, Peter Dutton's being vilified for saying no to The Voice. Well, he was in Alice Springs last week. He met locals. He repeated his call for the Albanese government to restore law and order. In an outstanding piece by Janet Albrechtson last week, she recounted a conversation with Peter Dutton to form the basis of a superb piece she wrote in the Australian newspaper. Now, with criticism of Dutton swirling around, demonised as much as fossil fuels by the other side, Peter Dutton said... And I quote, the intimidation has no effect on me whatsoever. I've been around long enough to know what I believe in. To stand up for what I believe is in our country's best interest. And I won't waver from that, unquote. Now, you will recall that Noel Pearson, a distinguished Indigenous figure, who once Peter Dutton said no to The Voice, Noel Pearson described that decision as a Judas betrayal of our country. Peter Dutton's response to that was splendid. He said, and I quote, Noel Pearson's a person with whom I've worked over the years, and I won't be the first or the last to be personally slighted by him, unquote. And then this point. Now, remember, in my interview with Matt Canavan last week, I asked him why big industrial outfits like Blue Scope Steel and Orica and Rio Tinto and BHP seem to be publicly supporting the so-called safeguard mechanism, where, as you know, allegedly Australia's 215 biggest polluters, who are also the biggest employers, will be forced by Bowen's legislation, to cut their carbon dioxide footprint by about 5% a year until the end of the decade to deliver Bowen's 2030 climate goal, while the rest of the world increases carbon dioxide emissions, I might add. Well, I asked Matt Canavan, given that this so-called safeguard mechanism will be immensely damaging to manufacturing plants, which are intensive producers carbon dioxide, I asked him, what is the corporate world up to in supporting such a punitive mechanism. I said that corporates were gutless, and I'll always maintain that view. Matt Canavan was much more courteous to say they were frightened of government, and they tell him a different story when they speak to him. Well, back to Peter Dutton, who said, in relation to those people in business and in sport who've gone public in their support for a yes vote, Peter Dutton nailed it when he said, and I quote, I think a lot of people and particularly a lot of leaders in business and sport, fear the retaliation and retribution if they don't sign up to The Voice. He said, and I think that's regrettable and offensive in a democracy like ours, unquote. Dutton didn't miss when he said, quote, I've never seen a more poorly run debate. I've never seen a more deceptive prime minister trying to starve the Australian public of information that they need. He said, it's without precedent. He added, this would be the most significant change to our constitution since Federation, and I've never seen a more shambolic process by government. Peter Dutton went on, the rule book of our country should not be changed without significant contemplation and open public debate, and we haven't done that, unquote. Now, I don't apologise for saying I call that leadership. 
Dutton is articulating the problem for which he's given little credit. I say unapologetically that in this difficult environment in which we live, we need more Peter Duttons. As I think you are aware, I do receive a mountain of correspondence. Without exception, and for many months now, that correspondence alludes to the untruths we were told during the coronavirus episode. The greatest crisis was not the virus, but the total absence of debate. If you dared to disagree with the quote unquote accepted truth, all hell broke loose, and don't I know it. I wrote and spoke from the outset that what we were being told about the virus, about the medical response, about lockdowns and masks, and kids being kept out of school, businesses going broke, I had read widely and I cited world authorities arguing against what we were being ordered to do. I listened to the daily press conferences, which were based on nothing more than fear, alarmism and hysteria. And I remember being warned, Alan, you must understand that 500,000 Australians might die. Government then interfered with the relationship between doctor and patient. Shamefully, families couldn't visit their dying relatives. People were arrested and fined for sitting on a park bench. I wasn't alone in saying that this was dangerous territory, but there weren't many of us. And you paid a high price in vilification. Well, now the real truth is emerging. One unwanted voice in all of this was the brilliant and thoroughly researched Rebecca Weisser. Only recently she made the point, and I quote, it was Stalin who said, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is only a statistic, unquote. Now Stalin was then weakly lamenting the loss of lives in the famine that he had created in the Ukraine, devastating the Ukraine and confiscating all of its crops. As Rebecca wrote, the military shot starving people who tried to escape. Exactly how many people died is unknown since the Soviet Union denied for decades that there had ever even been a famine. Rebecca further writes that despite this barbarism, there was no shortage of Westerners to whitewash the crime against humanity, including eminent people like George Bernard Shaw and Malcolm Muggeridge. Now, as Rebecca says, there is no comparison, of course, between the horrors of the Stalin-imposed famine in Ukraine and coronavirus. But she then says, and this is the guts of the truth, quote, there is a comparison to be made in the ignominious role played or not played by the media. Rebecca Weiser joins me. Rebecca, thank you for your time. You are a very courageous lady, but as you know, disagreeing with the received wisdom of chief medical officers and their mouthpieces, heads of government, meant that you paid a costly price. But it's now clear, is it not, that much of what we were ordered to do and punished for not doing was fabrication. That's, that's right. And uh, that was clear from very early on, as you said, um, Alan, anybody who looked at what the established science said about any of these matters, whether it was uh, the actual severity of the virus, its lethality, the effectiveness of wearing masks to, pre to prevent infection from a respiratory virus, uh, and then later on, you know, whether any of these early treatments worked or whether the vaccines worked, all the way along, we got uh, basically uh, misinformation <laughs> from government sources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've cited the emails of this infamous, and I use that word advisedly, Dr. Anthony Fauci and his friends, released only under freedom of information. And you say they must, quote, vie for first place as the greatest conspirators of the COVID era. Just to amplify that. Well, the amazing thing is that constantly anyone who criticised the official narrative was called a conspiracy theorist, and yet there literally was a conspiracy. And uh, who was it who was conspiring? Why Dr Anthony Fauci and a, a cabal of scientists around him, very senior people, conspired to hide the source of the virus, which was quite clearly and is now said to be by two US agencies, Department of Energy and uh, uh, intelligence agencies, have said it quite 
clearly the balance of probability is it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, leaked from a lab. Mm. And yet anybody who said that at the time, because it was apparent... Which Fauci, which Fauci I might add, had helped to fund. Exactly. And why else would he be covering up the fact that that was where the virus came from, other than to cover up the fact that he had contributed to this reckless mm. pursuit. I mean, th there were cables that came to Washington from the diplomat saying this lab is not being run in a way that will, it's dangerous. There, mm. there is a real risk of a lab leak. And of course, then, then you've got Donald Trump, the, uh, the only person who stood up to Fauci, and, and he's vilified. Uh, you say of Fauci, quote, he's equally in the running to be the greatest source of disinformation on just about every aspect of the pandemic, ably assisted by quote unquote experts and public health authorities around the world. That included here in Australia, did it not? We got sick and tired of listening to chief medical officers. Yes, that's exactly right. And what is really shocking about it is that uh, at the same time as we were given a barrage uh, of, of misinformation from government sources, they were actively censoring highly qualified people, including Nobel Prize winners, no less, um, who were telling the truth. And, and why wouldn't a Nobel Prize winner tell the truth? Because after all, once you have received a Nobel Prize in, in physiology, you know, or in, in, in biology, in the sciences, nobody can question you from the point of view of, you know, oh, we're going to withdraw your funding. Oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. So these people were, had got to the top of their career. And people like Professor Luc Montagnier said way back in May of 2020, this virus has been, uh, has been engineered. It has been bioengineered in a lab. It comes from a lab. Mm. He explained how mm. it was done. Mm. And he was rubbish. And it managed, I mean, it managed to weaken the whole economies of the West. China were clapping their hands. You see, we were misinformed every day, not about the virus alone, but about proved medication, about vaccination. And just on the vaccination, what about the demonization of unvaccinated? There are still people watching us tonight, unvaccinated, who lost their job because of it. What compensation are they entitled to? Well, nothing at the moment. I mean, there are not just people, there are people who lost their job, but on the other hand, there are people who got vaccinated yeah. and lost their lives. Lost their lives, yes. They lost their job and their life. I wrote about a fellow, Roberto Garin, the autopsy, the report from the pathologist here, an excellent report, and it said he developed myocarditis as a result of the vaccine and within eight days he was dead. He got mm. vaccinated mm. for his job. He lost the job, he lost his life. And when I last wrote about that, he had still got not a cent in compensation. And the TGA, the drug regulator, hadn't even put his case up when I contacted them. They said, oh, we're waiting until, you know, the coroner actually, you know, the the pathologist is the expert, but waiting for the coroner's report, which had some mysterious mm. delay. And that's why all these edicts, weren't they, issued by government from Morrison down, you must be vaccinated, you must be vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, you can't travel to Queensland, you can't catch a plane, you can't go to a shop, you've lost your job. I mean, this is where our freedoms, one of the, one of the centrepieces of a modern democracy, freedom, and that freedom should extend to freedom to being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. You see, I quoted world authority epidemiologists repeatedly. They were ignored. And you have written that the scientific method, you say, involves careful observation, rigorous scepticism and robust debate. We had none of those three. That's absolutely right. And, and that is fundamental. Without that, you don't have science. You have dogma and, uh, you know, the laughable proposition was Anthony Fauci one day actually said in an interview, oh, when people attack me, they're not attacking me, they're attacking science. I am science. I mean, what a parody. This man was yeah. the antithesis mm. of science. See, but in Queensland, a doctor dared, who dared prescribe ivermectin was threatened with jail. Now... Mm. 
you know, your point there, you can't engage in science without freedom of thought and free speech. I think your words, Rebecca, were, Rebecca's words, and I quote her, free speech was deemed so dangerous that doctors, scientists, academics, and anyone who questioned the world, according to Fauci, was cancelled. And of course, what compensation to those? We'll ask you, Rebecca, what compensation professionally to those who were vilified and suffered reputational damage? No compensation so far. And many people, as you uh, said earlier, uh, doctors are still fighting. They lost their um, license to actually practice medicine, like a very courageous doctor in Victoria, Dr. Mark Hobart. He was uh, you told, oh, you're uh, giving fake exemptions for masks, people who couldn't wear masks or people who didn't want, couldn't be vaccinated. Oh, well, this is a fake exemption. He is still fighting to try well, and get his uh, license back. Well, at the recent state election, no names, no pack drills, a young lady came to me and she explained just that story. She had prescribed a medication to a patient who came into her surgery, was going to die, didn't want to go to hospital, didn't want anything. And she said, look, I think I can repair this. She had a wonderful reputation medically. So she provided this medication and the woman lived. But she lost her medical practice license. So I said she was standing for state parliament. So I could only get her at an appropriate time, four o'clock in the afternoon or something, so I pre-recorded her. About 10 minutes after I'd finished the pre-record, she came to me and she said, oh, look, I, I just don't think, can you not play that tonight because I'm just frightened about retribution? Rebecca, this stuff's still going on. Why didn't mainstream media question any of this? Instead, they promoted it. It, it's shocking and um, even now it's sort of, it's, it's as if it's like, you know, the Berlin Wall being pulled down in slow motion, you know, sort of one brick at a time. Uh, it's painful to see because I see obviously on alternative media interviews with nurses. And now these were women and some men who went in in the first year of the pandemic and faced the virus and treated people and who are rightly recognised as heroes in our community, not just for their service then, but throughout. And they, because they did not want to get vaccinated, they have lost their jobs That's it. and That's they right. are still out of a job. And meanwhile, the government is bringing in increasing immigration to fill those jobs in nursing and, and for the doctors. Well, it's the same with the police force. People are mm. complaining about a shortage of policemen and women because those who aren't vaccinated can't be employed. Uh, uh, just, it's just unbelievable. This, what I'm talking to Rebecca about is still going on here today. I mean, you quote Elon Musk. He bought Twitter. And suddenly he found what was happening on that platform, Rebecca? Well, it's uh, been called, he, he called in, you know, to extremely experienced journalists. And I might add, these were not journalists who, who would be, say, branded as of the right. They were of the left. They were of the My, left. Michael but... Schellenberger, a wonderful man, yeah. And uh, Barry Weiss, who had been the opinion editor of the at the New York Times, she was bullied out of the job because she wasn't woke enough. And uh, Matt Tybee, who used to be at the Rolling Stones, been a strong critic of, of mainstream media. When they went in, Elon Musk just opened it up to them and said, you go in, you can have a look at all the staff communications. What they found was what they call the military-industrial censorship complex. I mean, this was censorship on a massive scale of ordinary Americans, and it was an operation that went on between uh, security agencies, intelligence agencies, FBI, the CIA, uh, Department of Homeland Security, working hand in glove with mm. Um, mm. NGOs mm. and university think tanks. And the whole purpose was for the government to censor people who were criticising the government yes. narrative, but yeah. to make it look as if it wasn't being done by the government. Yeah. Because That's in it. the United States, the Outsource First Amendment... Outsourced the exactly. censorship. I mean, and, and even to the extent of the Hunter Biden laptop. Absolutely. Oh, 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 this was all a conspiracy. It didn't really exist. We can talk all night. I want to ask you a couple of questions before we go. Why did government here grant indemnity to the big pharmaceutical companies if vaccination was a safe medical procedure? 
excellent question. And the same might be said. The pharmaceutical companies insisted on indemnification and would not uh, provide their uh, fabulous um, vaccines unless they got it. Uh, in the United States, that's a standard practice. And uh, so they were able to demand it and get it everywhere else. So without being a conspiracist, therefore, aren't I entitled to wonder why the cheap, very cheap ivermectin was banned in favour of the big pharmaceutical companies who entered into contracts with the federal government and we have never ever been told what the cost was of those contracts, of the vaccinations and the constant insistence that we don't have one but two and then boosters as well. So Big Pharma got very rich on government contracts when the taxpayer was told nothing and that's still the case. Well, that's right. Well, we can see the profits. I mean, it was literally billions of dollars for both largely for Pfizer and then in second place for Moderna. Moderna also got government subsidy to set up mm. a new manufacturing plant here um, for to make more of these, um, you know, uh, vaccines for everything under the sun. And uh, well, let's see. But, you know, all the research shows that it's not that there are many things wrong with these vaccines, but one of them is the actual mechanism, these lipid nanoparticles that are used. And uh, so that, that could be a whole so new problem for us. Where do we go from here? Well, uh, we are not out of the woods yet, Alan, by a long shot. Uh, mm. I'm not sure, you know, the, I'm sure some of your readers will be aware that the WHO, which is headed by an Ethiopian Marxist, no less, Dr. Tedros, Red Ted Gebreyesus, they now want a pandemic treaty and they want to alter the regulations so that the WHO won't just recommend to us what to do in a pandemic. They will be able to tell us mm. what to do. Yeah. It will be a, a requirement. So. Oh, that's for another day, Rebecca. Mm. That's for another day. We're out of time. But look, wonderful stuff. <laughs> but I think our viewers can understand this woman's very well researched, highly intelligent. Someone somewhere along the line has got to start listening to these people. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time. Thank you for your scholarship. And thank you for your persistence, because... The public are really entitled to know where the truth lies. Rebecca Weiser. Thank you, Alan. I spoke last week about the disgraceful treatment in Victoria of the Liberal MP Moira Deeming, a teacher turned politician. We need to hear more from this woman and nothing from the incompetent Liberal opposition leader in Victoria who wanted her expelled from the party. As I explained to you, you might remember Moira Deeming attended a rally on the steps of the Victorian Parliament, protesting peacefully the need for safe spaces for women. In other words, there needs to be full debate on what rights transgender women, that's biological men who transition to women, what rights should be allowed to women in spaces reserved for women. Now, common sense would say, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Moira Deeming attended a rally arguing for safe spaces. It was infiltrated by a few Nazis, and she was accused, virtually, of being a Nazi sympathiser. I said last week she should be the opposition leader in Victoria, and that bloke Pesuto should be provided with an undignified exit. Interestingly, Moira Deeming said at the time of going into Parliament, I quote, I don't think it's healthy to tell children that they can change sex or that their feelings on what sex they are are the thing that they should affirm rather than their biology. Because she said, which thing is going to leave you healthier in the long run, unquote. She wants to see an inquiry in Victoria into youth gender medicine, arguing that the inquiry, quote, has to be genuine. It has to be real and it has to be open and it has to go for six months, a year or whatever it takes, unquote. Now, Victoria is home to Australia's largest and most influential gender clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, where new patient referrals, this is a gender clinic, have multiplied 100-fold over the decade since 2011. And the clinic gets moral and financial support from the Andrews Labor government. Moira Deeming used her maiden speech recently as a Liberal member of Victoria's Upper House to call for, quote, an open inquiry into gender affirmation practices. 
unquote, involving minors. She described hormonal and surgical interventions as, quote, medically unjustifiable, irreversible, and devastatingly harmful, but argued, quote, ideologues continue to vilify and incite hatred towards anyone sounding the alarm, unquote. We're talking here about gender ideology in schools, which prompted Moira Deeming to say she could no longer teach in Victoria in good conscience. She said, I didn't want to be involved in telling a child that medicalised gender change was good. I didn't want to be involved in confusing a child. I didn't want to be involved in lying to parents. I felt like she said I was being used by the government to push an ideology behind parents' backs, which was not anywhere near close to being harmless." Unquote. Well, that's Victoria. Let's go to Queensland, where the Labor government has legislation before the parliament to help people in Queensland more easily change the sex indicated on their birth certificate by removing the requirement to have undergone sex reassignment surgery. Under the legislation, parents would be able to opt not to record a gender on the birth certificate of their newborn. These are supposedly plans as part of reforms to promote trans transgender rights. I spoke off air this week to the opposition leader in Queensland, David Christofulli. He told me the legislation hasn't gone through the parliament, but it will with the support of the Greens. If the legislation is passed in Queensland, children over the age of 16 will be able to legally identify as a different sex without parental consent. But they'll need a supporting statement from an adult whom they've known for at least a year. Those aged 12 to 15 will need parental permission to change the sex on their birth certificate, 12 to 15, but they'll be able to apply to the courts if they can't get their parents' support. A medical statement from a doctor or a psychologist will not be required. At what point is legislation of this kind completely out of step with community expectations and with parental rights to say nothing of the safety of women. But you've got the Attorney General in Queensland, Shannon Fentiman, condemning those who question these moves, saying that those who criticise, quote, will try to cloak their transphobia in the guise of women's safety, making claims about trans women accessing women's spaces, including change rooms or even domestic violence shelters, unquote. So you see, dare to criticise and you'll be vilified and transphobic. But it appears if that you're an MP, like the Attorney General in Queensland, you can tell untruths as you blunder your way through. Says Attorney General Fentiman, quote, I want to be clear, there is no evidence, domestic or internationally, to support these outrageous claims, unquote. Well, she's either ignorant or dishonest. There was a 2020 incident in Britain where transgender prisoners sexually assaulted women in jail. And yet, trans inmates were still allowed to be transferred to female prisons upon request. The British Ministry of Justice said that, quote, since 2010, out of the 124 sexual assaults that occurred in the female estate, a total of seven of those were sexual assaults against females in custody perpetrated by transgender individuals, unquote. It raises a significant question, doesn't it? I was driving down the streets of Sydney yesterday and I stopped at the traffic lights. There were a lot of young children aged three to 15 crossing at the lights and I pondered what their future holds. Are we living in a time when the law and society will tell you that sex can be changed, that young children can make life altering decisions without parental consent? that birth certificate information can be changed, that feelings override biology. If that's the case, what kind of world are we becoming? And let me repeat what I say many times. Is this stuff being encouraged and cultivated in schools? As you've heard me say many times in the last couple of weeks, if you were to take note of the headlines, in the predominantly left-wing media, the Liberal Party is facing extinction or something close to it. I've already made the point that in the Bulletin magazine of December 20, 1988, the front cover offered an uncharitable comment of the then opposition leader, John Howard, described as Mr. 18%, and it asked, why does this man bother? 
One of the biggest issues of the Liberal Party or that it faces is an unwillingness to listen to a plurality of views. There is about the party an incestuous element. For example, this fellow Yaron Finkelstein, who I wouldn't feed, presided over the Morrison calamity, not just on election day, but prior to election day, presumably advising Morrison of his political strategy, which increasingly aggravated and eventually eroded political support, witnessed the mess in the pre-selection of candidates. But of course, this Finkelstein then got a gig working with Perrottet and drove Perrottet to the same disaster. As well as this, there's no enthusiasm amongst young and gifted Liberal Party members to offer themselves for pre-selection because they can't navigate the walls of factionalism. Yet common sense would tell you that the factional warriors should have had their day. They dictated terms in WA, South Australia, Victoria, Queensland, Canberra, and recently New South Wales. On policy and strategy, they were comprehensively rejected. Now, I'm not carrying a brief for Dave Sharma. He doesn't need it the defeated Liberal member in the seat of Wentworth. But I'll tell you something. I don't know who the Liberal Party are, really. I don't even know if they exist. I don't know who make the decisions. But Sharma's intellectual quotient would outstrip the collective intellectual ability of almost all who currently determine the direction of the Liberal Party. I'm talking the administrative arm, not just the parliamentary arm. This man, Dave Sharma, matriculated from Taramara High School in Sydney in 1993 with the highest possible tertiary entrance rank of 100. He went to Cambridge University studying natural science, to believe. He transferred to law, graduated with first-class honours, returned to Sydney to study medicine. He gave that a miss and joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, having gained a master's degree in international relations. He became a major figure in the powerful Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and was appointed by the then Foreign Minister Bob Carr in 2013 as Ambassador to Israel at the age of 37. He won't mind me saying it, but it's most probably taken him a while to adjust to the meanderings of political life. But he now writes splendidly, objectively and intuitively about the Liberal Party and other things. And with a Senate vacancy created by the tragic death of Jim Molan, why wouldn't Sharma be a candidate for a spot on the opposition benches in Canberra, which desperately needs intellectual clout? But I suspect that some hack will be given the nod by faceless administrators. Dave Sharma has recently written about why the Liberal Party should be able to thrive again in fertile ground. And as I've been saying, that fertile ground is currently occupied by a lot of women and a lot of young people who find they don't have a political home. Dave Sharma joins me. Dave, thank you for your time. But I wanted to talk to you first, not about the Liberal Party, because you've written with great clarity about that, but about China. Uh, you've recently said of China, because everyone's worried about China and talking about China, you said the tailwind for China is now over. Its power on the global stage may have already peaked. But then you added, in many instances, this marks one of the more dangerous periods in global affairs which tend to be disrupted more often by declining rather than rising powers. Dave, thank you for your time, but can you amplify that point? Good evening, Alan, and it's a great pleasure to join you. Look, China's growth in, in economic power, but also military power, has very much been driven by favourable demography over the past several decades, really. But we see China's demography is now going into reverse. Their overall population is shrinking, their working age population is shrinking, and they have a birth rate, which puts them on a par with countries like Italy and Spain in Southern Europe, far less than the replacement rate. Now, I don't know of any country in history that has a shrinking population and a shrinking working age population that still is growing in the metric of power. It's very difficult to grow your economy. It's very difficult to grow your military if you've got a, a shrinking workforce and a shrinking tax base. But in many respects, and this is the, the point I noted, a declining power or a power that thinks its best days might be behind it rather than ahead of us often is tempted to try and lock in the gains, if you like, at, at the peak of, at its peak of the international system. And I worry a little that China under Xi Jinping uh, sees these next few years as an opportunity to remake the world as much as it can in its own image. 
before it goes into that demographic decline. Mm. Just to go back a bit here, uh, you have written very interestingly uh, that the population has fallen for the first time since 1961. Uh, you mentioned That's a figure right. dropping by 850,000. Is this a consequence, well, not just a consequence of the one child policy introduced in 1980, but has the rising middle class in China embraced the Western commitment towards smaller families and having children later? Look, absolutely. It's a, it's a product of both. The, the one-child policy has obviously um, has accelerated this, but even now that, that one-child policy has been lifted and, in fact, the People's Republic of China now provides encouragement for families to have two or three children. Uh, but that's not happening. The birth rate isn't shifting and it's because, like we see in other middle-class countries and developing countries around the world, as countries get richer, women wish to have careers, they tend to marry later, they tend to have children later and they have tend to have smaller families as well. So even though one-child policy is no longer in existence really in China and uh, no longer on the statute book, so to speak, their birth rate is still uh, very low and that's that's quite a hard thing to, to reverse. You can mandate the number of people beyond which people can no longer have children, but to encourage them to have more is pretty difficult as we've all found. All right, now people listening to you are saying what they say every day, what's that mean for China's place as a global power? Well, I think it means that China's rise up the ranks of the global powers, and that's been the, that's been the big feature, the big story in the international system over the last three decades. China's entry into the world economy, its growth as a share of the world economy now, the second largest economy by some measure, uh, and its growth in military power as well, that is going to be harder to sustain. We already see that in China's growth figures. China, which used to quite readily crack um, two digits and see growth of 10 or 11%, is now back to 5% forecast for this year. Their population's getting older. All the gains they had from moving a rural population to urban and city centres, that's already been harvested. Uh, they've moved up the value chain because labour now costs more there. Um, it's going to be much harder for them to grow at the same rate. They so have, so just interrupting you there, David. Dave, so if that puts a strain, as you said, on economic growth, is that limiting their resources that are available for what frightens a lot of people, their military and global expansion? It does. Uh, I mean, China already spends a huge amount on, on defence. And of course, being a communist government, so not responsive to the public in the way democracies are. They can take those sorts of choices without facing too much public outcry. But the pie is only so big. And if the pie is stagnating or eventually getting smaller, well, then everything bears that consequence. So the, their ability to fund ambitious expansion of the defence force and their capabilities is going to come under some strain over the next decade or two. So if that's the case, how then do you answer the question that everybody's asking, is China a threat or a benefit to Australia in this region or both? Look, it's both, Alan. I think we, we do benefit Australia and many countries by our trading relationship with China, by what we have to sell from to them and what we can buy from them. But undoubtedly, they've behaved in a threatening way in the region, uh, not only towards Australia by putting on punitive trade measures, but their actions in places like the South China Sea, uh, the bullying that we've seen of their neighbours, their aggression towards Taiwan, which they consider to be a renegade province. These are not things that aid stability or peace in the um, Asia-Pacific region, and they're not things that are in Australia's national interests either. Uh, it's... I think it's the truth of the international system that they're going to be both over the next few decades, a partner in some respects and an adversary in others. But the, the declining population, OK, which accelerates the decline in economic growth, as you said, it used to be double-digit figures. How, therefore, does that put together affect Xi's global ambitions for China? Well, I think Xi wants to leave with a legacy. Uh, he wants to have transformed China's international position position within the system uh, and now it would be his judgment that china is probably at its strongest it has been historically at least over the last 200 years which is true uh, it's his judgment that the west is still fundamentally uh, weak and lacking in will and uh, disarrayed if you like but he wants to lock in some of those favorable circumstances by creating facts on the ground now whether that's reunification forcefully or otherwise with Taiwan, uh, whether that's a Chinese veto, if you like, over shipping in the South China Sea, uh, 
these sorts of things are, um, are what he wants to ensure. Mm. Gee, a, veto in the, a, a veto over shipping in the South China Sea would make a mess of the Australian economy, that's for sure. I mean, just finishing up on China here. So you're saying that their power on the global stage may have peaked, but then you make the corollary to that, that that would, may well make them one of the more, make this one of the more dangerous periods in global affairs. How do you marry those two points? Well, I think... When a power sees that its best days are now or, uh, or slightly behind them and the historical circumstances, the trajectory is going to be unfavourable in the future, it can often cause you to behave in a more aggressive fashion. I mean, this has been the story of Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Putin is an incredibly aggressive statesman because he's got a shrinking population, uh, an economy that's stagnant but he wants to ensure that Russia remains a great power, a force to be reckoned with. And so we see him very adventurous on the global stage, intervening mm -hmm. in places like Syria, uh, like Iran, and of course, with naked aggression in Ukraine. Uh, and we could see a situation where China under Xi Jinping also wants to lock in its place at the top table. It doesn't want to go into a decline without having to secure some of the assets or the facts on the ground mm. that will ensure mm. it continued and, 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 within and, and People listening to you are saying, how do we manage this? We are hopelessly, in defence terms, underprepared, aren't we? We are. Uh, there's a lot we've got to do. We've got to spend more on defence. We've got to have more asymmetric capabilities. These are things like submarines, but also drones and unmanned systems, cyber capabilities. Uh, we're never going to be able to be a peer competitor of China. The difference in size is too great. But what we need to be able to do is make any any adversary, including China, think twice about taking on our interest because mm. of what we might be able to do for them. Well, that's really the, the function of defence policy. I say to my viewers, I've said this every time I speak to Dave Chalmer, it is clear from what you've heard tonight, this man is one of the superior and much needed intellects in the Liberal Party. So, Dave Chalmer, are you a candidate for the late Jim Molan's Senate seat? Uh, firstly, let me say I have a huge amount of respect for Jim Molan and whoever fills, his, uh, fills that seat will have huge shoes to fill. Um, but no, I'm not planning on putting myself forward on this occasion, instant, uh, Alan. I am keen to serve and keen to contribute to the public debate and I certainly believe strongly in the Liberal Party and putting myself forward for elected office when the time is right. But I don't think that time is now for me. But, but aren't you a living and breathing... I mean, this is a bit embarrassing, I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask you this because everyone's saying it. You, amongst many others, are living and breathing metaphors of the problem. Uh, splendid scholarship, an outstanding ability to analyse global issues. I mean, the Labor Party saw in Andrew Charlton, for example, a splendid intellectual talent. They grabbed him in Sydney out of the eastern suburbs, out of a multi-million dollar home, shoved him into a seat at Parramatta because they wanted that intellectual grunt in Canberra. Now, you were beaten by the Teals in Wentworth. At the end of the day, how do we change the structure in the Liberal Party so that not the factions will determine who gets the nod, but talent, ability, capacity and a, and an, a circumstance in which we've got the best people representing the party? How do we change all that? We haven't got it at the moment. No, we don't. Look, I don't have all the answers there, but the diagnosis of the problem is, is correct. What other parties tend to do, the Labor Party in Australia, but also the Conservatives in the UK, is they have a, a head office or a party structure which identifies talent, uh, which finds them a seat, which makes sure they're supported and helps them get elected because they're, they're always conscious of the need to revitalise their, their talent pool on, the, on their front bench and on their back bench. In Australia, look, the way pre-selection and candidates work, it's, a, it's potluck whether good candidates get up or not. Uh, it's often due to circumstances well beyond their control and completely irrelevant to their own credentials and capabilities, mm. uh, and that absolutely has to change. Otherwise, we're not we're not putting the best no. our best people forward. No. We're just becoming a, a self-sustaining political machine. Absolutely, for the interests those who are already there. Mm. Just before you go, you see, you have said that political parties who are rejected by the electorate need to embrace. I think your words: a period of reflection and renewal. Now, I don't see any evidence of that happening here with the Liberal Party. Do you? Not yet, no, Alan. And I hope, I hope that will change. I think it, it always takes some time to internalise losses and learn lessons from them. But 
the temptation is often to just rinse and repeat. Uh, and that's what we absolutely must not do because if we, uh, if, if we do the same thing again and offer the same platform again and appeal to the same voters again, we're going to get the same result. Mm, that's right. Uh, that's why I think we need to, you know, start from the ground up, root and branch, not only our policy platform, not only our machinery, not only our ability to attract good candidates and good members, uh, but also how we run campaigns. So from the organisational wing to the parliamentary wing to the policy wing, mm. uh, that all needs to be, that all needs to be looked at. I, I always said in sport, Dave, if we do what we did last week, we'll get last week's result. So that applies to politics as well. Great to talk to you. Lovely to hear the clarity of your thoughts. And we must talk more often. I'll have you back again to amplify some of those points that you're making about the Liberal Party. But thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me on. Dave Sharma. What a mind that is. What a talent it is. You'd think parties will be running after this bloke saying, we want you top of the list. I don't care who else, we want you top of the list. While ever the Liberal Party refuses to do that, it'll stay in the doldrums. I think most people would agree that accountability and answerability are everything in government. As you've heard me say many times, I can't think of a problem that our nation faces where the architect of that problem has not been government itself. Every other day, hard-working Australians who are taxed to the eyeballs are angry about the way taxpayers' money is spent, and they feel they have no voice, if I could use a bastardised word. Well, if we're talking about accountability, why haven't the federal opposition sought answers as to how Brittany Higgins received a payout of reportedly $3 million? It's taxpayers' money, no matter the amount. I've said before, we should know how much what for, how this was calculated, and what scrutiny was applied to the process. The little bit we've been told says it was the subject of mediation, but that mediation lasted less than a day. Who was involved in the mediation? Who signed off on such a massive amount with obviously little discussion? Mediation is a process in which the pros and cons of a case are argued and debated. Taxpayers would think of a thousand cons, that is, reasons against such a multi-million dollar payment being made. If this is the way government operates, something drastically needs to be done. The cavalier way the taxpayers' money is shelled out is an absolute insult to the battlers in Struggle Street who would never see these amounts of money in a lifetime. How do you qualify for them? Another former coalition staffer, Rochelle Miller, reportedly got 650000 in a settlement. We were told for hurt, distress and humiliation. Allegedly, that she suffered while working for former ministers, Liberal ministers, Alan Tudge and Michaelia Cash. Now, I don't know Tudge all that well. I know Michaelia Cash. It is impossible for me as a taxpayer to believe that anyone would be hurt or humiliated in the workplace by Michaelia Cash. I understand no admission of liability was made by the government. So what the hell's going on here? This is another Liberal media staffer who worked for Ministers Tudge and Cash between a couple of years, 2016 and 2018, nothing, five minutes. She apparently filed a complaint with the Department of Finance alleging bullying, harassment and discrimination at work. For part of the time she worked for Alan Tudge, she was having an affair with him. And yet now a deed of release from the finance department, which has the oversight of all of this, said she would be paid $650,000, quote, in respect of her damage and loss, which occurred during the employment, but prior to the termination of the employment and in no way connected to the termination of the employment, unquote. What the hell does that mumbo jumbo mean? And who determines this stuff? $3 million allegedly to Brittany Higgins, and now to this Rochelle Miller, $10,000 in respect of past loss of earning capacity, $100,000 in respect of future earning capacity, that is if anyone would want to employ her, $28,000 as reimbursement for past medical and like expenses, $28,000, $62,000 for future medical expenses, $62,000, $300,000 for hurt, distress, humiliation, dislocation of life, loss of professional standing and impairment of personal dignity, 
and 150,000 for reimbursement of her legal costs. This person worked for two ministers for five minutes between 2016 and 2018, and during part of the time was having an affair with one of them. And she comes out the other end with $650,000 uncontested dollars. That's what someone on the median wage, that's the wage right in the middle of those earning above it and those earning below it. This would take someone on the median wage 10 years to earn, and there's no debate. What the hell is going on in public administration in this country? Well, just to wrap up the show, they say some people are hard to help. And that can certainly be said of those in charge of the Liberal Party, Australia-wide. After recent electoral defeats, each state executive and the federal executive should be cleaned out and refreshed, that is, sacked. There should be a spill of all positions and an overhaul of the structure. By whom? God only knows. The Liberal Party are the rugby league West Tigers of the political world. And just as the West Tigers supporters are staging their own quiet protests in relation to the shambolic management of their club, so too should the Liberal membership. They're treated with disdain by the so-called power brokers who are only interested in building their own chiefdoms. The electorate is almost all, well, almost always, not almost, always ignored. Branch members are told to sit down and shut up. Liberal staffers, on taxpayer-funded salaries are too busy playing factional games. And Liberal MPs seem to be more interested in getting corporate box tickets to the next football game. The whole setup is broken, and no wonder voters are walking away. I alluded to this when I spoke to Dave Chalmer or earlier tonight. Let's go through the Liberal Party primary vote in recent times. 2020 Northern Territory general election, 31%. 2020 Queensland state election, 35%. 2021 West Australian state election, 21%. 2022 South Australian state election, 35%. All these were losers. 2022 Victorian state election, 34%. They didn't have any interest in the senior prefect that was running the Liberal Party. No one knew his name. 2022 Australian federal election, 35%. 2023 New South Wales state election, a disaster. 35% in seven elections. Not once has the Liberal Party achieved a primary vote with a four in front of it. Well, as for the New South Wales Liberal Party, headed by people you wouldn't trust to run a bath, let alone a political organisation, they're now spinning March's result by calling it a success because Labor are in minority government. How about that? Losing is now deemed a success. The latest from this soap opera called the New South Wales Liberal Party is filling the Senate vacancy following the sad passing of Jim Molan, a friend of mine and a great Australian. But even Jim, a general in the army, who led the coalition forces in Afghanistan. And I was talking earlier to Dave Sharma about talent. This man had to fight his way, he didn't win pre-selection, fight his way through non-entity power brokers to actually get to the Senate. That's a story for another time, I suppose. But filling this Senate seat will be a test for those who purport to organise the right in the New South Wales Liberal Party. Jim Molan was their person, hence the so-called right should be filling the spot. Now, the so-called right, by the way, are merely true Liberals. But no, the male is the New South Wales State President. Go on, pause. Who is he or she? The New South Wales Liberal Party State President. Who? Maria Kovacic. She's the favourite to fill the vacancy. She was Morrison's pick for the seat of Parramatta. She lost it, a really popular person with the electorate a Liberal swing against her of 6.3%. Somehow she was then made the President of the New South Wales Liberal Party. No one wanted the job. And now six months from that, she's eyeing off the late Jim Molan's Senate seat and is the preferred choice of Matt Keane's moderates. We know where they finished up at the state election. But the so-called moderate faction are not moderate at all. They're lefties. And they're about a millimetre if you're lucky, to the right of every Labor decision. They should join the Labor Party and leave the true Liberals alone. Others who want the seat include the one-time Western Sydney MP Fiona Scott, the former State Minister Andrew Constance is apparently in the mix. He's a good man. The story being that since Jim Molan resided in Queanbeyan, the Senate vacancy should go to someone in the regions. But I think if Andrew Constance stood in that seat, Gilmore, where he narrowly lost at the last federal election, he would win next time. But all of this is a fair argument, the seat going to someone in the regions. But why not indigenously to Warren Mundine, especially at a time when we're debating a 
contentious race-based amendment to the Constitution. I couldn't think of a better voice in Parliament, if I could use that bastardised word, a better voice. Look, let me be clear. This Senate seat was occupied by someone who was a Conservative and therefore it should go to someone who is a Conservative, but don't hold your breath. Those in the right of the party are fragmented. They've got egos and, like Dominic Perrottet, are only too happy to sell their soul and do deals with the left. This will be a real test for the Conservatives in the New South Wales Liberal Party, wherever they are, and the influence they purport to have, I suspect, not much. And therein lies the heart of the Liberal mess. True and genuine Liberals are on the outer. Well, that's it from me tonight and for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the program. I'll be off air next week. I'm going to Queensland to do some Anzac Day work at the little place where I was born, Ackland. But you can still access my editorials and interviews on the ADH TV app and website. It's all there. And tonight's program you can hear from 6am tomorrow morning on your podcast app. Just search Alan Jones. We've covered some ground this week. I hope it's helped in your understanding and enjoyment of the issues. I'll be back the week after next. And always, we won't be mucking around. As the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is wont to say, woke dies here. So I thank you for your company. But before I sign off tonight, on your behalf and mine, I am sending an encouraging, supportive and caring message to my friend, Barry Humphreys, much loved by all Australians. Barry has given us moments of joy that are unforgettable. He's in hospital at this time. He's laid up and I want him to know that he's not alone. Our love and thoughts are with Barry and the wonderful human being and the great joy he's given us. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.